This week, HVAC 360's series, Big Wigs in HVAC History, salutes Daniel Bernoulli. Why this Swiss mathematician of the 1700s, most famous for the development of Bernoulli's principle, which simply states that an increase in speed of fluid occurs simultaneously with a decrease in static pressure. Some other little-known facts about Daniel? He had won first prize for a primary school essay titled, That's What the Number Four Tastes Like. Had a well-documented habit of sneezing when going over bridges and was banned for life from the French Riviera casinos for counting cards out loud. Suffice it to say, Daniel Bernoulli, our wigs are off to you. Welcome back, Matt Nelson here, your host for HVAC 360, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. I do that either by sharing information, specific lessons learned from the field, or talking with industry experts. Um, hey, I am in the middle of going through and trying to reach 100 subscribers on my YouTube channel. Um, I would really like you to uh, volunteer and go over to YouTube, look up HVAC360, and sign up for the uh, channel there. I'm going to be doing some things here shortly in the month of March, and I wanted to be able to just reach 100 people, uh, 100 subscribers, uh, just to get things started. So I'd really appreciate anybody who'd want to be uh, jumping on the bandwagon and uh, helping me out with that goal. All right, so what's up for this week? This week we're going to be talking with Max Rohr, uh, which is an awesome name, um, of Rayhow, or he is the Rayhow Academy Manager. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about how using radiant systems in buildings uh, can really save you a lot in energy costs and provide you a more comfortable environment uh, to all your occupants. And uh, personally, I think the, the, the most difficult thing about this is... Uh, learning how to say Rayhow because it's just a capital R, capital E, capital H, capital A, capital U, uh, but it's pronounced Rayhow. All right. Now you know too. Enough chit-chat. Let's just cut to the tape with Max Rohr. All right. Today we're talking with Max Rohr, who is the Rayhow Academy Manager. How you doing today, Max? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So now, I guess, uh, if you could tell me who is Rayhow, and now that's, I mean, if you look at it, it's R-E-H-A-U, but it's pronounced Rayhow. Um, what are some of the products and what should people be familiar with? So we are a, a global uh, polymer manufacturing company. We actually started in Rayhow, Germany. It's a small town. And um, we have been making polymer versions of different products from uh, 1948 on. And we produce all sorts of things all over the world. One of the, the more common ones would be like a full painted bumper for a Mercedes car. Uh, in Europe, one in three cars have some sort of Rayhow part. Uh, in the States, we produce PEX A pipe for plumbing and heating. Uh, and we have a plant in Coleman, Alabama where we do that. So I think we're in 55 different countries with locations, but in the US, that's a, a big market for us, the plumbing and heating space. So now you are the, uh, obviously we mentioned you're the Academy Manager. What is the Rayhow Academy? 
Yeah, so the it's the training department for our division, for the construction division of the, the company. So we have in-person seminars, we do webinars, we have a, a YouTube uh, playlist with a bunch of hands-on videos, and then uh, a bunch of other resources for installers and designers. Um, I've worked as a, a contractor in the past, so as I, I've been at Rayhow almost four years now, and we've been kind of changing our approach with training to be a little bit more hands-on, interactive, uh, things that contractors like to do because um, having been a contractor, going to presentations that are just eight hours of PowerPoint isn't really what I'm looking for. That's not my learning style. <laughs> so uh, sometimes a, a two-minute YouTube video of how to use our Everlock Plus power tool or something like that is a, is a better way to go. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, yeah, you, get, you get those bullets, bullets to death. Um, so now we're going to talk a little bit about a study that was produced by the New Buildings Institute uh, regarding energy usage. Um, what what were some of the uh, the findings of that study? Yeah, so this is a, a great study that we like to lean on when we talk about radiant heating and radiant cooling. So they did a survey of site energy use for 23 buildings or 23 radiant buildings. And some of the cool findings is that about two-thirds of those buildings received an energy star of 90 or above, so basically in the, the top 10 percentile of energy-efficient buildings. Um, and then they also found that it mirrors their kind of energy efficiency findings, mirror the largest database of zero-net energy buildings, where more than half of uh, zero-net energy buildings in North America use a radiant system. So that's kind of a fun statistic for us when we are talking about high performance building because if you are very serious about going for whatever the certification may be lead platinum high energy star score uh, anything like that people get to the point that from an engineering standpoint radiant just makes good sense to really hit those high numbers um, and then another study that we like is from the uh, eia the energy information agency in a 2012 study and they found that radiant buildings use 32% less energy than kind of standard construction. So that's a little bit of the background to why we think that radiant buildings are also more comfortable and are a great space to, to live in and work in. But sometimes, especially with the commercial market, those you know, 32% target energy efficiency numbers are really what motivate engineers to go that direction. Now, for anybody out there who doesn't understand uh, how Radiant works, uh, can you describe that a little bit? Sure. So the stepping all the way back to kind of the molecular level, uh, water carries 3,500 times more heat energy than air. So that's kind of the basis of everything that we're doing. You can heat and cool a space with forced air. Most of the buildings in North America do that. Um, but at the most simple form, water is just a good vessel to move energy around a building. So through a you know, three quarter inch pipe, we can circulate the heat energy that we need to a room, usually with a mixture of water and glycol that we circulate with a pump and a closed loop. Uh, we use PEX now. In initial, like the earliest forms of radiant heating systems, they were actually doing wrought iron pipes that they were threading together <laughs> to make a big, you know, basically a radiator that you pour concrete over. Those systems didn't last that long because the concrete really attacked the, the iron. So now we use PEX and we have a version of PEX-A that we make that's really flexible. So you kind of weave that in the floor, pour concrete over it in a traditional application, 
and then you circulate warm or, or cool water through that uh, that network of pecs, and that's a way to heat a space instead of just uh, circulating warm air. So now, um, when we're talking about you know, and we're talking about net zero buildings from from the study, um, actually, uh, you know, some of them are near net zero. Really, that's it's kind of a, a, a nuance. Um, unless you're you know generating electricity from your from your grid, really, you you develop a building that uses as little energy as possible, and you're going to supplement that uh, with uh, whatever renewables you have. Um, but now we hear a lot of discussion uh, when we talk about these types of buildings about decoupled systems. Uh, what is that and why is that important? Yeah, and to the first part of your statement there, there's a part-time job out there for someone to just keep um, on top of what we're calling very energy efficient buildings. <laughs> so it could be uh, net zero and then it was zero energy buildings. And it's, you know, in Europe, they use passive house and they're like a million different terms for kind of the same thing that we're just trying to reduce the amount of energy that we're using in a building. So that kind of changes all the time. But basically what we're doing with a, a radiant system um, in, we'll just use a commercial example what we're going to do if we approach like a new school project is that we want to decouple the sensible and latent loads. So what Radiant is great at is the sensible load. So we can heat and cool a space effectively. We, as I mentioned before, water is a great vehicle for moving BTUs around the space. So we like to rely on that for the sensible heating load. We don't do anything with the latent load. So in a best case scenario, we would do Radiant heating and cooling and then we would have like a, a DOAS, a dedicated outdoor air system, covering the latent load and then bringing fresh air into the space. So in you know 20 years ago, if you did a radiant heating house, you would just rip the furnace out and you'd put radiant heating in. Uh, there was enough infiltration that you would have enough air changes for that space to be comfortable. You get fresh air into the space. Um, that was fine. If you're going to a radiant cooling system in new commercial tight construction, you have to get the fresh air into the space. And that's where we will still have a kind of downsize optimized forced air piece as well that we call you know, a hybrid system. So we've got the best way to transfer the energy around the building. We also have the best system that we kind of lean on the strong points of both of the systems in order to keep fresh air and humidity levels in check and things like that with the DOAS. Right. And, and, and you're not losing a lot of space um, because of having to upsize the, uh, the ductwork to accommodate the, um, uh, you know, a larger all air system. Yeah. So in most cases, what you would notice if you're an architect is that instead of having very big ductwork, you take that and you downsize it and maybe it's now an oval that fits somewhere else or whatever that you're really just doing a trickle of fresh air to keep the humidity in check and then the rest of the heating system disappears so it just goes into the concrete and it's covered and then you don't see it so instead of having big bulky ductwork you might have a little bit of air moving around um, but you can really clear up a space from an architectural standpoint by doing a, a hybrid system like that. Now, is that, is that, I mean, when we talk about bearing pipes, um, is that the, the only type of radiant heating and cooling out there? Um, is there some other form factors that we should be aware of when we're taking a look at different radiant systems? Sure. So in a traditional radiant heating application, we just do the floor because the human comfort profile basically 
you like that the average human likes it when their feet are warm and then their head's a little bit colder, just a couple degrees, two or three degrees colder. That exactly matches how you would heat a space with a radiant floor. So your feet are going to be warm, but you're not, your head isn't in a space that's, you know, a hundred degree air or something like that. Like you might notice in a, a poorly designed forced air system where it's very, very, very hot, but the floor is ice cold. So with radiant, it's pretty simple um, for heating. For radiant cooling, what we can do differently is in some cases, like we did a project, uh, the University of Chicago has a, a dorm building um, that Studio Gang, this really cool architectural firm, put together. What we did there is we actually have a heating and cooling system that is uninsulated, so we don't have any sort of floor coverings above and below. And the ceiling is concrete and the floor is concrete, and it heats and cools both directions. So in the summer, really the cold from the ceiling falls down and cools you that way. And then you feel the warm floors in the winter kind of on your feet. So it heats and cools both directions, which is a good way to go for uh, radiant cooling because you do get a little bit more capacity having the coldest part of the room where the hot air stratifies up. So that, that gives you a little bit more capacity there. And that project was fun because they targeted really, really ambitious energy efficiency goals the average dorm in Chicago is kind of their baseline. They were able to save 41% on the, the amount of energy that it takes to heat and cool that new dorm space that they put together with the radiant heating and cooling. Um, that project was fun for a couple different reasons. The, uh, the engineer did an awesome job of figuring out the control side of it. So the controls aren't really that complicated. We're really looking at the surface temperature of the slab to make sure that it doesn't get too cold. We're looking at the air temperature and then we're keeping an eye on humidity levels. So one of the things that we would generally uh, shy away from is operable windows in a space like that, especially in a dorm room where um, having gone to college and seen all of my uh, classmates just open their windows in the middle of, of winter and things like that. It's kind of a, it's a tricky place to do radiant cooling because the occupancy is so varied. Uh, and operable windows were usually bad, especially in a place that's so humid as Chicago in the summer. So they did this cool thing, uh, DBHMS is the engineering firm, that they actually turned that zone off if the window was open. So they just had a little uh, sensor that breaks when the window's open, and then you stop cooling that zone. So in that case, even in a very humid Chicago summer, we haven't had uh, condensation issues because they kind of figured out a way to do both at the same time. Normally, uh, we don't do the operable windows and we follow ASHRAE standard 55, which is thermal uh, environmental conditions for human occupancy, and then ASHRAE 62.1, which is ventilation for acceptable indoor air quality. Both of those standards really set us up well to avoid condensation because that's kind of the the scary word when we talk about Radiant cooling is uh, engineers are worried that it, well, what if you get the floor too cold and then it turns into a, you know, a, a slip and slide inside of a building. That's like my absolute nightmare. So the good news is if you just follow those ASHRAE standards that I mentioned, you don't really create those conditions because you don't get the floor too cold and the space doesn't get too humid. Uh, essentially, those are the things that we're looking to avoid. Uh, the good news is those ASHRAE standards um, set that up for us well, because you would be uncomfortable in a space that was too cold and too humid anyway. So just from a ventilation and comfort standpoint, 
uh, if you're doing that well with good design, we are in great shape for radiant cooling. So, I mean, obviously, I think that, uh, uh, you know, we, we talked about the heating, the cooling being kind of the, you know, the real real tricky part. What what are some of the key design, uh, the important factors, key design factors that engineers have to look out for when they're designing a space like this? Sure. So um, our favorite projects are going to be commercial new construction, mostly because they're already paying attention to those ASHRAE standards um, already, 55 and 62.1. Uh, new construction is going to mean that we're going to have a nice tight building envelope so we don't get a lot of humid air infiltration that we're kind of paying attention to that already. And then another thing that we look for is minimal floor coverings. So the the best case scenario, we can do floors and walls and ceilings and all sorts of stuff. Uh, they work best when it's just tile or marble or concrete, you know, the, the concrete that they can put the color in looks nice. If you're going to do some sort of like retro throwback, uh, three inch pea green shag carpet, you can do that. Uh, we're just not going to get as much capacity because it's it's like adding a big uh, insulation, a big blanket on top of the system. So the capacity won't be as good as if it's just bare concrete. So those are the things that we normally look for uh, to make a, a just a project go really well for us. Right. And that's something that you really, as a designer, you need to be talking with the architect and you need to be, you know, integrating that in uh, to your design. You need to make sure that you know, the interiors people are selecting, you know, something that's appropriate to your space. Otherwise, you're going to have to, you know, sort of derate what you're going to actually be able to produce. Is that that fair? Yeah. And that's something that you can't control 100% of the time. So um, in cooling projects, people are less likely to mess with the ceilings. They're less likely to go back in and put, uh, you know, some sort of decorative floating cloud ceiling thing, but they might put down a big area rug or something like that. So um, those are all things that have come up and really just derate the uh, the efficiency of the system a little bit. It's not the end of the world. It will still work, just not as well it was as it was designed to if, if the initial plan was to do all concrete or something like that. But there are all sorts of ways to work around that. And we kind of anticipate the projects that if we're looking at a loading dock, that's going to be concrete. That's going to be concrete for a long time. If we're looking at a residential space, we will kind of uh, anticipate that maybe there might be some changes to what they put on the floor and kind of design the system accordingly. Right. Now, I know that mostly we're talking about because of the, the you know, the, the study, um, we're talking about commercial buildings. You know, however, you know, obviously, you know, like you said, the loading dock, that would be an area uh, where you might have a, a snowmelt system put in. Yep. And you can also use, uh, you know, these radiant systems uh, under turf. Is that correct? Yeah. So those are other applications. And it's it's fun for us because it's the same basic. The basis pipe is the same for all these different applications. It's the same thing that we've been producing um, since uh, 1968, 67 is when we started making PEXA. So we use the same product for all these different applications. We'll do a different jacket and get different certifications for the application. But... Uh, Turf conditioning, like you mentioned, what we do there. An example of that is where the the Broncos play. I can't remember what they call it now. Sports Authority Field at Mile High or whatever the current name is for Mile High Stadium. What they do is they circulate uh, warm fluid through pecs that's below the grass, just in a bed of sand. And they're not trying to melt snow necessarily. They're just trying to keep the roots of the grass happy so they can use 
a natural grass on those fields and we kind of extend the growing season because the roots of the, the plants are happy longer than they would be in a normal uh, Denver summer and winter. So what we can accomplish there is that they don't have to resod the field as often and uh, it makes for a nice playing surface where it's it's basically a well-kept lawn instead of something that you're just putting grass tiles down on four times a season. <laughs> um, and we've done a bunch of those stadiums across the world. I think we've done like 50 stadiums um, all over the, the world. So that's a good use case. Snowmelt's another one that we really like. Uh, the best applications for that are going to be anything high traffic. So uh, one of our examples is the Union Station. That's the big train station in Toronto. Uh, they have snow melt all the way around the outside of it. And some of the advantages there are people aren't tracking in salt into the building. There's you know less potential for slip and falls. We can't really you know say that people won't fall because that will never be the case. But you don't have a bunch of snow and ice right outside of the the doors as you know thousands of people are getting off of a train. So that makes for a, a better you know safer environment. You can you can help create that, and then just the convenience of not having to move snow. So those are some other things that we do. But really, it's the same kind of network of pipe uh, in concrete or in in sand below turf or whatever the case is. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it never surprised, you know, it never ceases to amaze me how I see uh, different areas, um, you know, that I know that have snow melt systems. Um, and I see the salt being put down. I'm like, you are, you are not doing yourself any favors. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is, this yeah, is a, it's sur- a, yeah, it's a surface. It's definitely the, the belt and suspenders approach, but yeah, the, ideally the, the people that are paying attention to that, you know, you'll see the line of salt up into the point that they're actually doing the snow melt. And then it's just kind of a nice, you know, either dry or wet surface the rest of the way into the building where you can kind of shake the salt out of your, your boots or something like that. Uh, but yeah, it's the, then the property manager changes and thinks that they need to go salt it again, but <laughs> just, just out of habit. Yeah. You're not doing the concrete any favors by salt. No. That's the thing. <laughs> Or um, the grass next to it or whatever. Right. So now, uh, I guess one of the things, I and I'm taking a look at some of the information that you have on the the, the Rayhow website, um, it it uh, piqued my interest when I saw the uh, the surface temperatures and how you're, you're able to, um, because you are heating surfaces with a radiant heating and cooling, this allows for a wider comfort uh, zone as far as yep. the air temperature. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so kind of the what we're talking about there is radiant temperature asymmetry. So if you've ever been to a restaurant in the winter that has like a patio and they do the big overhead infrared heaters or something like that, and it's very, very, very hot. But then if you're facing that, your back is ice cold. So that's pretty bad radiant uh, asymmetry there. You've got something that's very, very hot, but the rest of the space is actually very cold. So what we do with radiant heating and radiant cooling is we've got this enormous uh, surface area if we're embedding the pipe in the entire floor of the space or the floor and the ceiling or the walls or whatever. So we've got a lot of surface area, which means we don't have to get the fluid in a heating example that hot that we may only be supplying you know, 90 to 130 degree water to keep a, an entire commercial space warm instead of having that you know one ball of sun in the middle of the room that that you would use to heat it. I mean, both will work. We've done that for a long time. You can do a cast iron radiator at 180 degree, degrees Fahrenheit or a steam radiator or something and just have 
one on one side of the room, or you can make the entire floor the heat emitter, which is what we like to do. And that helps us uh, gain some energy efficiency points too, because the boiler's not working as hard as it would be. It's just making 110 degree water on a shoulder season day that it's circulating. So that, that helps a lot. And then the other thing that we can do in a radiant cooling scenario is that it's, it's a difficult thing for us to explain to homeowners or building occupants at some point, but we can chill the floor a little bit and then actually set the air temperature to 78 degrees Fahrenheit and everybody's comfortable. So you may think looking at a thermostat, like that's, that's too hot. I'm going to be sweating in this room, but because all the surfaces around you are so cool, not cold that you would be uncomfortable, but have been you know chilled a little bit that you don't need that ice cold uh, air blowing around the space anymore. So it, that better matches the human comfort profile too, that you can do it both ways. You can do ice cold air and warm surfaces, or you can chill the surfaces a little bit and then have warmer uh, air circulating. So that's, that's something that engineers sometimes will miss is that they'll do a radiant cooling system and then still have a 72 degree air temperature target. And we have to say, okay, everything looks great but set the thermostats to 78 instead and everyone's going to be comfortable. So, Yeah, and you, and you mentioned the, the airflow. That seems to be one of those things that um, at least human perception, if, if, if uh, you know, an office worker has been working in an office for a long, long time, they're kind of used to the fact that they have air blowing or they hear air. And then when they don't hear the air, they're like, it's not working. And they, don't, they miss the fact that they're completely comfortable, but you know, it's, it's the expectations of the system. Yeah. And that's something that, that comes up. Um, I'm sure many times in a year, our salespeople get the phone call that, uh, Hey, we've got this radiant system and we just turned, we've been out of town for two weeks and we just turned it up six degrees or 10 degrees and it's not warm in here. And it's usually just the expectation that not even that the space is going to heat up fast, but they'll just notice it, that they'll hear the furnace kick on and they'll feel, you know, hot air coming out of the the vents and things like that, where our best use case is just a really consistent like cruise control that we're keeping the temperature mild all the time, uh, but it doesn't make noise and it doesn't do the things that you're expecting if you're the you know the normal homeowner. So sometimes we have to kind of uh, get into the details of what to expect with a radiant system, and then we say, okay, set the temperature where you want it, and then call me back tomorrow morning if you're not comfortable. And then we, we don't hear from them again because they just waited long enough for the system to recover and then they feel fine. Now, I guess you, you talked a little bit about the, uh, the heating water where it was like anywhere between 90 and uh, 130. I mean, and engineers, you know, please make note that is the condensing zone. So we're talking about, yeah. you know, finally condensing boilers and being able to use condensing boilers to their full extent. Um, and not doing something crazy like just, you know, generating 160, 180 degree water. So you have a true condensing um, factor or, or design conditions on the heating side. What about the cooling side? What kind of temperatures are we looking at there? Yeah, and that, that to step back, that's a great point because the, the boi- in heating mode, the boilers that you will buy, I used to sell boilers, and they may have a 96% AFUE stamp on the side. That's if they're condensing like crazy. <laughs> That's not if they're making uh, 180 degree water. So this uh, the supply temperatures we're looking for for radiant for heating really keeps you in that like best case scenario 
lowest supply temperature where you're going to notice the boilers condensing a ton. And that's what we love to see because then the boiler's happiest and you're getting the most out of the energy efficiency potential of that equipment. So for cooling, um, generally in most cases that we look at, uh, the dew point's going to be somewhere around 55 degrees. So we're going to supply probably 90% of the time, 58 degree uh, supply temperature water to that space to cool it. Uh, that gives us three degrees that we're staying away from the dew point just to have that little extra band of, of safety. And uh, that's, that's generally the case. And cooling is actually much more specific and much easier in some senses that we're probably going to do five eighths pipe at six inch spacing and do that 58 degree, you know, coldest supply temperature water. Uh, and that's about it. So it makes it a little bit easier for designers to figure that piece of it out. And that's what we do all the time is to kind of talk through the projects and see how we're going to approach that and where the sensors are going to be in that type of thing. Right. And and speaking of sensors, how do you, you, know, you, you talked a little bit about um, how you controlled it um, in the, uh, in your uh, Chicago uh, school example, uh, but typically yep. how, how are the uh, radiant systems controlled? So what we're looking for, usually in a commercial new construction space, they're doing some sort of DDC control system anyway, and it may tie into the door locks and the security cameras and all that stuff. So what we would add to that are just going to be simple air temperature sensors. Um, we would add surface temperatures. So we're going to embed like a 10K sensor into the concrete to see what the slab temperature is. And then sometimes with a cooling project, we would add a sensor basically leaving the chiller plant. So making sure that whatever water we're sending out to the building isn't cold enough that it would hit dew point. So if it leaves the mechanical room at 45 degrees, there is potential for that system to sweat somewhere, even if it's really well insulated. So we just add that one sensor basically to the coldest part of the mechanical room to make sure that we are not sending cold water to the manifold or to the floor, because if we notice it there, it's kind of too late. So those are the, the basic sensors that we use. The other thing that we would add would just be uh, humidity in all the zones that have cooling if you're doing a radiant cooling project. So we can keep an eye on the dew point. And then uh, if, let's say, um, someone decides to bring the entire karate team over and they're you know doing karate practice uh, in one of the rooms and you see the humidity spike, we basically just turn that, that zone off uh, with the, the cold water and make sure we don't run into the, the dew point there. And there's some rooms that we just stay away from. A big commercial kitchen is not going to be a good use case for radiant cooling, um, things like that. But like an atrium, perfect case for radiant cooling because you you don't want to cold have to push cold air into a huge space like that with that much vertical space to try and make the people on the you know six lowest feet of a big airy atrium comfortable. It's so much better to do that with a, a cool floor. And same thing with heating with a warm floor in the winter. Now, you, I mean, you talked a little bit about kind of, you know, leaving a system uh, for, for a couple of weeks. What, I mean, when you're looking at, you know, I mean, typical control scenarios, are you going to have like night setbacks in most all-air systems? How do you do that with a radiant system? So that's a great question. That comes up all the time. So what we advise people to do is not to get aggressive with setback schedules. So in a house maybe one degree Fahrenheit, two degrees Fahrenheit. That's really all that you need. It's that cruise control example that a radiant system is most efficient when it's just cruising along at the right temperature. 
Um, it doesn't react as quickly as forced air to change the thermostat up degrees, up 10 degrees, down 10 degrees. Um, that's not our strong suit, but it's not the most energy efficient way to do that. I think that when the thermostats started getting an energy star uh, label at some point because they had, they were programmable. This is probably 10, 15 years ago. And then they realized like, Oh, that's actually making it worse that you're always kind of chasing your tail a little bit. If you set the thermostat down 10 degrees Fahrenheit, when you go to work and then try and catch back up, you're overshooting and undershooting all the time. So with the radiant system, we like to keep it really consistent. Um, there are some cases, some kind of interesting use cases with radiant cooling that if you are in some sort of project where you're using all electric as your source, so it may be a geo heat pump or something like that, you can actually kind of load up the building at night when the utility rates are cheaper and cool down the slab. And then it kind of coasts through the day. And then maybe at you know 4 p.m., you need a little bit more forced air to, to handle the cooling load for the rest of the day. And then at night, it, it chills it back down again. So you can get creative with, with scheduling like that. But normal thermostat adjustments, we would, you know, my favorite thing to do is just put a piece of painter's tape over the thermostat and just say, you know, push up and down once a day until you're comfortable and then just like never look at the thermostat again. <laughs> and it's uh, not, it's easier said than done, but the best radiant system is just a consistent set point. So now, obviously, there are good applications and there's bad applications. You, you've mentioned the uh, uh, the application of a um, uh, a kitchen not not the best use of a radiant system. Um, so now, it's it's are there examples of you know things that go wrong uh, with radiant systems um, that you can you know. Let us know some some horror stories that hey don't do this or you know I can't believe this happened. Yeah, so the um, unfortunately we have had some cases where things went wrong. You, my best recommendation there is just well coordinated projects. Is <laughs> as simple and as complicated as that is. If you're going to do some sort of radiant cooling project for the first time, make sure you just sit down with the architect and the engineer and the installing contractor and kind of go over what the plan is because some of the horror stories are the cases where they'll, you know, an installing contractor will come in and do a great job putting the pipe in the concrete and then someone immediately drills a hole in it to, you know, mount something on the floor in an art museum. They're putting in some new installation and they don't know that there's radiant in the floor and they drill through it. It's not the end of the world, but we do have to chip up the concrete and repair that pipe and then you know, pour concrete over it again. So usually the the problems that we have are more on the miscommunication side of it than they are, you know, operation or things like that. We can fix those things, uh, but the stuff that's actually embedded in concrete's the least fun to fix. <laughs> so now, if if anybody is installing the uh, um, the actual tubing, I mean, is that something that uh, you know, if a con you want a contractor that's done that before, or is it a big deal? Is it easy enough for anybody to uh, to kind of you know pick up as they go, or should you know contractor um, you know go through some training beforehand, or how does that work? Yeah, so we we have all sorts of training options. We have salespeople all over the U.S. and Canada that can walk you through any piece of it, so they can start with the architect with you know why you would want to clear up a space like the. Milwaukee Art Museum is a cool project for us that they have, I don't know if you've seen that building, but it's this big uh, like skeleton structure looking really cool thing that is an enormous atrium of glass uh, and they do radiant on the floor. 
And because of that, you don't see any HVAC equipment. So it's just this really beautiful building overlooking the lake. It's all glass, but you can walk in and still be really comfortable. So starting at the architect level, we can work with the engineers and then the contractors, the actual putting the pipe into the ground. Uh, that's the the easiest part of us, part of the procedure, I think, because contractors are good at figuring things out. So what we would do to help in that case is we would put together a radiant heating or cooling design and we'd give that to them. You know, it's just something we put on top of a set of their plans and they can see exactly how the piping goes together, where the manifold goes, how to hook everything together. You get a parts list and, and that type of thing. So um, it's something that there are with the other PEX manufacturers in the industry, we can fight over the the radiant jobs that exist. Um, what I would prefer to do is just find more uh, traditional HVAC people who are interested in trying radiant cooling as having that additional kind of tool in their toolbox to tackle really energy efficient projects and things like that. And we can help uh, even someone who's never done radiant through the whole process. Right. So it's, so it's less, less a concern about the contractors and them getting it right. It's more about the um, engineers out there adopting it and, um, you know, why, why wouldn't they adopt it? I mean, is it just fear of the unknown? Is it, is it a, 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 uh, a myth about cost or, or what, what, what is that? I think both of those things. So I think that the, the myth about cost part of it, that anyone who looks at the idea of, okay, well, I used to just do one system that was forced air. And now you're asking me to do like two parallel systems. Why would I do that? And I think if that's as far as you get that it, can stop the whole you know, project right there. But if we can actually get to the point that we're asking questions about, okay, well, what are your goals for comfort for the occupants? What are your goals for energy efficiency? Are you trying to hit any uh, hard to obtain you know, lead scores or things like that? That's a good way to keep the conversation going. And then we feel like we can win those, those projects when we get a little bit more into the use case of the space. Um, it's not something that's going to be an enormous additional cost up front. It probably will be a little bit more expensive, but depending on the contractor, it may be you know, 1% more expensive than forced air only because you're downsizing and optimizing the rest of the, the forced air components. So you're saving money on that side. So it's not something I think that Radiant has in the past been written off as something that's just like full-blown luxury item. And it's really not anymore. We've gotten very good at the the procedures and the materials to make it cost effective. And then you get the benefit of being in that, you know, 30% energy savings for the life of the building. Now, I mean, as, as far as the engineer goes, if they, if they kind of, you know, say, okay, you know what, I, I'll go with the, the radiant system, uh, even though it might be, you know, arguably a little bit more design time. Um, what, what do they really need to, um, you know, spell out as far as uh, what do they need to put on their drawings to make sure that the uh, system gets selected right and, and put in right? I mean, they're not necessarily, you know, diagramming all the, you know, piping back and forth, right? No. So that's something that the Radiant designers, we have some, um, you know, on staff at Rayhow will do that. And then there are some, there's some engineers and contractors uh, and wholesalers that will do their own designs that we use. Uh, LoopCAD is the software that we have uh, that will help you figure out all of the different rooms and things like that. And then if we get the set of plans and get an idea of what they're trying to do, and then we can look at it and say, okay, this looks great. I would recommend that we skip that, that kitchen with cooling. And I would recommend for sure that we do radiant in the atrium. We can kind of start with the architect and the engineer there. And then with LoopCAD, we can actually 
plug all these things in and build the, you know, the CAD drawing and be able to say, okay, you are going to need supplemental heating in this space. So we can't, you know, people will be uncomfortable if we get the floor too hot. So in this space, we're going to need some supplemental heat uh, and things like that. We can just have an honest conversation about this is a good fit. This isn't a good fit. And then if we agree on all that, we end up just printing out and sending the the documents to the installing contractor so they know down to the you know, inch where to put the pipe and, and which rooms to avoid and which spaces in the concrete may be you know, drilled into and things like that. Um, everything well-coordinated we do a good job of walking through that whole process with anybody in the supply chain. All right. So, so a whole bunch of support for any engineers out there willing to take that next step. Yeah. And one of the things that we found is engineers like to see uh, case studies. They like to see that they're not the guinea pig. <laughs> I mean, I think that there are some engineers, thankfully, that are willing to just take a, a leap of faith. Uh, but we're past that as an industry. We've got a lot of proven uh, results uh, with Radiant. Uh, the Center for the Built Environment is another kind of think tank at the uh, University of California, Berkeley, that does a lot of research on Radiant. And it's uh, non-brand specific, just kind of industry research. That's good to lean on. And then just case studies. People like to see that they're not the first to do it. So um, we've got a website, na.rayhow.com uh, backslash schools, where you can see a bunch of school projects that we've worked on with Radiant Heating and Cooling. Uh, that's, uh, that's good for anybody to just see that, okay, this is what they did. This is how they did it. And it worked. Um, we can't really say that any better than having a, a case study to show to somebody. Right. And we'll, we'll put all that in the show notes. Well, Max, I really appreciate your time. Any, any final thoughts that you have? Uh, no, thank you for having me on. I think that, uh, the more people that, that know about radiant and aren't afraid of it, it's kind of a, a better built environment that we can work on together. Uh, as an industry, I think that it isn't necessarily a fit for every single project, but it really is an incredible, uh, deliverable for a space that you're going to live in and work in for a variety of reasons. So I'm, uh, just kind of a born and bred radiant advocate, uh, and that's why I have so much fun doing my job. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, check out our schools page. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Not a problem. Thank you, Max. All right. Thanks again to Max for taking the time to chat with us. Check out the show notes for uh, links that uh, things that we mentioned during the interview. You can find those show notes over at HVAC360.com slash 155. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. Uh, if you know somebody who's looking to step up their HVAC game, consider sharing this episode or another one of your favorites. I don't care. Um, uh, with them. Uh, this by far is the best thing you can do to spread the word about the podcast. Um, if you want to do uh, going up above and beyond and get some extra credit, you can always become a subscriber over at HVAC360.com to the newsletter and get some more weekly goodness. Again, uh, you can sign up for that YouTube channel, be one of my first 100 subscribers. And lastly, I'd be greatly honored if anybody, anybody would uh, be willing to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. All right, well, that's a wrap for this episode of HVAC 360. I'm Matt Nelson, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. And as always, know what you build and share what you know. <laughs> <laughs>